You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Today we're going to talk about anxiety and what the biblical approach to this topic is, a topic that has really become a quite a touchy subject in our culture today. And I'm going to warn you right now, this is probably going to be a long sermon, <laughs> uh, longer than normal. If my sermons are normally long, this one may be longer still. And the reason for that, this is a weighty subject. This is something that I believe touches all of our lives. We live as sinners in the midst of a sinful, fallen world. I am confident in saying that I'm sure anxiety has touched each and every one of our lives to a variety of degrees in a variety of ways in a variety of areas. And so this topic requires much discussion. A few years ago, I preached a sermon in that touched on the subject of anxiety and depression. And it was a sermon that I was, I was so worried, you might even say anxious, about offending someone that I gave a million qualifications, I hedged all of my statements, I beat around the bush, and I took forever to say what I believe the Bible actually taught on this issue. And I will not be taking that approach today. However, I do want to avoid the pendulum swinging so far to the other direction that I become calloused to the experiences that we, ex- that we experience and, the, and mock those that might struggle with anxiety, if some have done in our culture. There is an approach that is common in some circles, especially uh, when the individual who is struggling with anxiety is a male, the response can just be, well, just man up, right? Just, just, just stop being such a wuss. And those are not biblical approaches to dealing with our anxieties. So my goal, therefore, is to speak directly and forcefully, and I believe biblically, to what the issues are at play, but doing so with an attitude of grace and love and gentleness. But the reality is there are two concepts that must come together whenever biblical truth is spoken. We must speak the truth, but we must do so in love. We must love others, but that same love demands that we speak truth. And so those two things must come together. And I hope that such a mindset is revealed as we progress through our time today. I also want you to know that I don't stand before you as someone who is untouched by struggles with anxiety. I do know what it is like to lie awake for hours due to anxiety about a situation. I know what it's like to have an issue become all-consuming to life. That's the only thing I think about night and day. I know what it's like to allow anxiety to cripple me and to prevent me from doing what I know needs to be done. And I know what it's like to beat myself up over the state of my own mind, leaving me feeling worse than I did before. While others have certainly had more severe anxiety than I've experienced in my own life, I am certainly no stranger to the battle myself. I wanted to say that because if anxiety is is something that you particularly struggle with, I'm going to say things that may seem difficult today. But I need you to know that I am preaching every much the sermon to myself and my own heart as I am to anyone else today. And I don't stand here in a position of, of loftiness in judgment over anyone. But I stand here bringing you the word of the Lord and what God has spoken on this topic. And so we must 
And I must submit even my own self and my own heart to what God's Word has to say on this topic. Bringing us into the context of Philippians chapter 4, before our Christmas series in the month of December, we were focused on this, this passage. And as Paul was, was writing and he was describing to us, he was kind of winding down his letter, giving his final instructions to the people. And as we came into Philippians chapter 4 and beginning with verse 4, Paul begins to give us what would seem like strange responses to the circumstances that the individuals were enduring. This, this church, I have said many times as we have gone through the book of Philippians, was a church that is struggling with persecution. They were a suffering church. They were not a church that was living their lives in happiness and bliss all the time. They were not a church that had no issues and no problems, but rather they were enduring tremendously difficult times. And Paul himself, as he writes, writes from prison in less than desirable circumstances. And yet he writes these strange responses that we ought to be observing. He says to rejoice always. Again, I will say rejoice. He reiterates that point. We must live lives of joy even in the midst of our hardships. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. In a situation when we are tempted to either fly off the handle or to respond unreasonably to different situations, he says, no, you are to be people that are reasonable, measured, gentle as you interact with others, even when there's wrong being done against you. We don't lash out, but we respond with reasonableness. And if if you recall, at that time as we were working through those verses, we talked about the concept of indicative verbs and imperative verbs. And I'm just going to refresh our memory on those terms. Indicative verbs are verbs of declaration. They declare that something is true. God sent His Son. God sent. That's an indicative verb. Jesus loves you. Okay, they de- these verbs declare something to be true. Imperative verbs are verbs of command. Be kind to one another. Husbands, love your wives. Do not murder, do not steal, etc. These are verbs of commands. They are imperatives. And what we find in the New Testament that Paul is always grounding the imperative commands in the indicative declarative truth. He always grounds imperative commands in indicative truth. And so last time as we saw this command to rejoice always and to let your reasonableness be known to everyone, these were imperatives, these were commands, but they're grounded in indicative truth. He says at the end of verse 5, the Lord is at hand. You can rejoice always, you can have lives of joy, you can be reasonable because you know The Lord is at hand. He is at hand. Though His delay may feel like He is acting slowly, He is surely coming and it won't be long before He returns and He sets all things right. Whatever injustice we see before us, whatever wrongs are done against us, Jesus Christ will return, He will judge, He will restore, and He will establish His kingdom. 
the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. But He is also near in the sense that He is accessible to us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He who promises faithful, He will be with us to the end of the age. So we can go to Him in prayer, and He will answer. He will hear, because the Lord is near. Grounding the imperative commands in the indicative truth. Well, it is on the basis of this same indicative statement, I believe, about the nearness of our God that Paul then goes into the next command in our passage this morning. In fact, the ESV even breaks it down this way. If you, if you have the ESV and you notice where it says the Lord is at hand, there's not a period at the end of that sentence. It is a semicolon. It is leading us into the next verse. There's a connection between these two ideas. The Lord is at hand. Therefore, because we know that is true, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. As we consider this text and what it reveals to us and teaches us about anxiety, we're going to unpack several things this morning. And the first thing that we have to acknowledge, if we are going to have any level of biblical approach to dealing with anxiety, we have to acknowledge and recognize that the root of anxiety is sin. The root of anxiety is sin. We have to acknowledge this. You know, in the medical world, a proper diagnosis is essential for proper treatment. And the same is true for our spiritual lives. And we talk about anxiety as being a, a mental illness. And if we were to think about it that way, maybe I even grant the terms of a mental illness in this area, but we still have to have a proper diagnosis. We have to have a, a proper definition if we are to engage in proper biblical treatments. Paul is giving us a direct command, therefore, to live in disobedience to this direct command from God is sin. It is rebellion against God's good desires and design for your life. And there just really isn't another way to put that. When we see what the Bible has to say about this topic, we shouldn't attempt to soften the blow. We need to have biblical definitions. We need to have biblical understandings of what it is that we're actually dealing with. And the root of anxiety is sin. And we, and we might be tempted to jump to different places in our minds. Right? We might be tempted to say, okay, well, what about uh, fill in the blank? What about this? What about that? But we need to, if that's where our mind is going, we need to hold on a second. We need to consider if we do not accept what God has said plainly and clearly in His Word, 
But I don't believe we can ever expect to see genuine change and growth within our lives. If we're not going to accept God's definitions, God's solutions aren't going to mean anything to us. So jumping to what we might think is an exception before dealing with the core issues is to miss the central things that we have to grasp. And I'm convinced that all the whatabouts that we might come up with, I believe God's Word actually addresses those things and has answers to all those things. I may not address all of those today, but I do believe that God's Word does have answers as we work through these things. Consider the commands of Jesus Himself in the Sermon on the Mount that we read earlier as our scripture reading this morning. That word for anxiety is used six times in that passage, and three of those times there's the direct command again, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. The first step to dealing with our anxiety is to submit ourselves before the Lord and confess that what He has said, it is true. And when we allow ourselves to linger in habits of anxiety, we are allowing ourselves to linger in sin. So we must have that definition understanding at the baseline of what it is that we are dealing with. The root of anxiety is sin. Now, as we go about our lives, though, we have different experiences. We have different things that might cause anxiety to to creep in upon us, and there might be a variety of things that cause us to have anxious responses. And in fact, I think Paul even acknowledges that, even in our text when he says, do not be anxious about anything. The way that is actually phrased in the Greek, we could translate it in a couple of different ways. We could say, uh, do not be anxious in any circumstance or in everything, in every circumstance, in, in any possible situation you might find yourself in, whatever variety of ways that might present itself, do not be anxious. And we know from experience that anxiety can come at us from a variety of angles. Anxiety can stem from a traumatic experience. And so we end up with things like PTSD, flashbacks, strong negative memories and associations that cause us to have anxious responses. As I was thinking through this text and thinking about what what it was that the Philippian church themselves were dealing with, I almost wonder if they were dealing with anxiety stemming from trauma as as they were literally persecuted, family members and church members dragged off to prison, executed for the faith. Paul himself was a subject of stoning and of beatings multiple times. You think that doesn't have an opportunity to create anxiety within an individual? Now, I don't know for certain that that was something that they experienced, but it would not surprise me if that was the case. I even also think of David in the Old Testament, the horrors that he both inflicted and endured as a man of war. If you read through the Psalms, there are many times in the Psalms where Paul, or Paul, David is expressing his heart and expressing even his own anxieties in the midst of difficult circumstances. But then we also find how he dealt with those and how he went to the Lord. Anxiety can stem from various fears that we might experience. Many fears are irrational and yet they affect us. Social fears, situational fears, relational fears, uh, fears that, that can become so strong that we're willing to alter our behavior in order to avoid the issue. 
Maybe it's a situation, maybe it's a person, maybe it's a decision that we have to make, but we're afraid to make the decision, we're afraid to confront an individual, we're afraid, so we avoid that all together. Calls to mind Timothy, a young pastor that Paul wrote to about how to handle various issues within the church, and Paul was instructing him to address those that contradict God's Word, and he addressed him to, to deal with those who were divisive within the church, and I can't help but wonder if that was challenging for Timothy. And in the second paragraph of 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul reminds Timothy that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. I wonder if Timothy's temptation was to avoid some of these issues out of a situational fear. Some of our anxieties might stem from a more of a existential standpoint. Fears that we have have to deal with issues related to the questions of, why am I here? What is my purpose? If I died, would anyone care? Am I even loved? Does anyone love me? And reading through the book of Ecclesiastes reveals that it seems that Solomon had to wrestle with some of these questions and some of these issues. Some anxieties stem from dwelling on our fears of the unknown. What would happen if, and you fill in the blank, well, what if I get COVID? Well, what if others that I love get COVID? What if the United States goes to war? How am I going to pay my next bill? What happens if I get fired? And we can let ourselves get caught up in all of these things that just flood our minds and we dwell on the what-ifs of the world. We dwell on the the possible futures, ignoring the presence of what is right in front of us. And I think Jesus himself addressed this concept in the Sermon on the Mount. One of the whatabouts that often gets raised about the issue of genuine medical conditions that might contribute to our anxieties, some health conditions uh, do seem to result in an increased anxiety as a presenting system. And in the biblical counseling world, there's a phrase that is often used, and it's embraced and, and, and used often, when in doubt, check it out. Right, if there's a medical condition that is contributing to our anxieties, we should not ignore the warning signals our body is giving us. When in doubt, we check it out. But a medical condition does not exempt obedience to biblical commands. And finally, there may be times when we might experience symptoms and feelings of anxiety when there's no identifiable cause. Right, the heart might be racing, the uh, panic attack might be coming in, and we don't know why. We don't know what the trigger is. We don't know what is causing that. It seems as though the body is having some kind of reaction to some kind of stimuli, but we don't know what it is. And yet there we go. Many possible immediate causes for the different anxieties that we experience. But Paul still says, in every circumstance, in everything, in any situation, do not be anxious. The Scriptures know that there are many different possible reasons why we might be tempted to anxiety. We talked about 
the examples of that through scriptures from David, from Paul, from Timothy, from Solomon and Ecclesiastes. These different opportunities, different temptations. But even with all the different immediate causes that might be presented to us, that might tempt us in a variety of different angles from a a variety of different directions, even with different immediate causes, the the ultimate cause is clear. The ultimate cause of anxiety from a biblical perspective is distrust. This can be observed through what the Scripture calls us to as a, what our response ought to be to our fears and our anxieties, where we're called to go to God in prayer. We're called to trust in God. Jesus says, don't, don't you trust God? You owe you of little faith. No, we should be trusting in God. If expressions our faith are as revealed in our prayers is the solution, then distrust is clearly, ultimately, the root of the issue. We are failing to trust that God is in control, failing to recognize that God has allowed this into our life for your good and His glory, failure to rest in the good God who loves you and desires to sanctify you through His Word. The lyrics of How Firm a Foundation come to mind. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. That we walk through hard things and difficult situations, things that might tempt us to anxiety. God is using that within our lives to continue to shape us, to mold us, to sanctify us. And failing to trust and failing to do as Paul commands reveals our own lack of faith on our God. From a biblical perspective, we have to reckon with and we have to realize and speak truthfully about what it is that we're dealing with when we are tempted to anxiety. These can be hard words. I know they are for me. Um, We're confronted with our own limitations and really confronted with our own sinfulness. But how do we deal with it? Okay, we, we know what it is. Okay, we, we see what it is. We see the command. And so the failure to live in, in light of that, that is a failure, that is a lack of trust, that is distrust in our God. Well, how do we actually move forward? How, what is the pathway for joy through our anxiety? As I was researching and reading and studying this, this topic of anxiety, this was a, honestly, I probably spent more time on this message than I have on most other sermons that I've worked on. Done a lot more reading, done a lot more study, and I I came across so much information and and so many quotes that on the face sound helpful, and yet once you begin to press in further, maybe they're not so helpful after all. Uh, For example, we have, have a quote from Charles Spurgeon, who is actually a man who is known to suffer from anxiety and depression himself, He once said that anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but it only empties today of its strength. 
And on the one hand, that's a true statement. That's, that's accurate. That's exactly what happens. We're, we're dwelling on something that hasn't happened yet or, or about all the what-ifs, the possibilities of the world, and that's in the future. Jesus says, let, let tomorrow have its own troubles, and we're emptying today of its strength. But if I were to guess, I don't think we need to be convinced of the negative effects of anxiety. We know it's bad. We know that it negatively affects us. We don't need a list of of quotes or a scientific breakdown of how anxiety negatively impacts our health. We don't need to be convinced that this is something that we don't want in our lives. I've never known someone who volunteers for anxiety. Yes, I'll take the next panic attack. I'll have it over here, please. It doesn't happen. Right? This is a different kind of of sin on some levels. Anxiety is not like some sins that tempt us with some pleasures that it cannot deliver. Anxiety doesn't promise us a better life. It's not like lying, which we do in order to save face or to get our own way. It's not like lust that promises gratification. It's not like slothfulness that promises rest and rejuvenation, but only leaves us just as tired as before. It's not like vanity that promises an increase of feelings of self-worth. No, anxiety seems to be a different kind of sin because it arises from the absence of something rather than the pursuit of something enticing. We don't look at anxiety and go, ooh, you know, maybe that would feel good. We don't do that. But it arises from the absence of something. And again, we've already established it's the absence of trust that is distrust in our good God. Well, if the root sin is unbelief in God, then of course it does follow that the solution is to trust, but we also want to avoid falling into the pitfalls of sounding trite and dismissive as we address this topic. One of the biggest complaints that I've come across in areas of anxiety is individuals wishing that Christians would stop telling people, well, you just need to trust God more. Or, you know, if you just had more faith in God, then these problems would go away. And this is honestly a, this is a concept that I wrestle with a little bit. On the one hand, the reality is, is that our anxieties, whatever the source, whatever the immediate cause is, they are rooted in our inability to reckon with the world rightly and trust that God will carry us through. We are believing a lie rather than the truth of God, rather than the God of all truth. But on the other hand, when we just respond, when people reveal, says that they might confess that they're struggling with anxiety, if we just flippantly respond, oh, you just need to trust God more. It's like, oh, here, take this pill, call me in the morning, and the pill is trusting God. It's like, the issue, I don't believe the issue is necessarily with the advice itself, but it's on an inability or an unwillingness on the part of the, of the person who is giving the advice to walk the person who is struggling, walk them through the painful yet necessary steps of actually overcoming the anxiety. And we want to be like, I don't know if you guys have seen that, that Bob Newhart uh, sketch that's available. If you look it up on YouTube, type in Bob Newhart, stop it. (laughs) The sketch of just 
where, where the, the individual comes, she's got this problem, she's afraid of being buried alive in a box, and, and Bob Newhart's solution is just stop it. And he just screams at her, just stop it, stop it. And eventually gets to the point where he says, stop it or I'll bury you alive in a box. It's like, okay. It's like, but, but that's what it can sound like. Oh, just trust God more. Just stop it. Oh, I'm struggling with anxiety. Oh, just, just stop it. Well, it's not that simple, right? It's not that easy. We wrestle with this. Such flippancy, such triteness minimizes and dismisses the real pain and difficulty that is being experienced in our lives. And so we must have a more robust response than that. And I believe Paul gives us the robust response that we need to walk through this pathway. The pathway for joy through anxiety begins with repentance. It begins with repentance. Though the command and idea of repenting is not found in this text immediately, it is implicit for how Paul calls us to address our behavior, and it is the correct response. Anytime that we discover sin in our lives, we must always be people who are quick to repent, knowing that we have the promise of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Any pathway forward must begin with and acknowledge in an agreement with God about the problem that is actually sin. And if we refuse to acknowledge our own sin, there is little hope for us for our success in seeing change in our lives. This really is the first step. I believe this is implicit in Paul's words. When he says, be anxious for nothing, and then he says, instead, do this behavior, that is the concept of repentance. We're walking in one direction, we're, we're, we have these anxious thoughts, we're stricken with anxiety, and he says, don't do that, turn away from that, we turn to something else instead. That is the concept of repentance. You know, Paul is known for the put off, put on principle. He uses that language in other contexts. Put off this sin, fill in the blank, whatever it is, and put on this other thing in its place. It's like if you've got something in your hand and and you're trying to pick up other things in addition to it, it's difficult because your hands are full. You must first put off and then you can put on. But if we don't put on, we will be tempted to go back to what we just put off. And so that, that principle is, must be in place. We, we put off one thing in favor of putting on something else, and that is the principle that Paul is giving us here in Philippians 4. Be anxious for nothing, put that off, but instead do something else. This is the concept of repentance. We must realize that I'm going the wrong way. I need to turn around to go God's way. There is little joy in this life apart from biblical repentance. The second pathway for joy is that of prayer. We must repent. We must go to our God in prayer. And this is the instruction that Paul gives us 
here in our text. The Lord is at hand. He is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Prayer. Talking with God. Going to Him. Telling Him about your fears. Telling Him about your needs. Telling Him about the things that you're concerned about. Asking Him, Lord, would you provide in this area. Lord, you, you know that this, is, that this is something I'm struggling with right now. Lord, it, it's going to Him at prayers. Supplications, that's a, that's a word. It, it's, it's similar in meaning to prayer. It speaks of a request. It's a plea. It's, it's like we're, we're requesting, we're pleading with God. There's multiple things that go on in this. Through this prayer, we, we walk through repentance. We repent in prayer before God. We tell Him our needs, our concerns, our desires. We pray. We let our requests be made known to God. I like how one commentator pointed out how this is phrased in the Greek where it says, let your requests be made known to God, that the words, that the Greek words for to God could mean before God, let your requests be made known before God, in the presence of God. It has the idea that we're, we're bringing our requests before Him and we're coming into His presence and we're saying, this is what I want you to do for me, Lord. This is what I am looking for. This is what I am concerned about. These are my desires. Lord, help me here into His presence. Hebrews says that because we have a great high priest, we can come boldly before the throne of grace. We can enter into His presence through our prayers. It's not just that we're, we're stuffing an envelope with a letter with all the things that we want, like it's a letter to Santa, and we're mailing it off, and who knows what comes with that letter. No, we are personally bringing our petitions and our requests before the King, saying, this is what I'm struggling with. Here's my concerns. Into the presence of God. And we can do this because the Lord is at hand. He is near to us. Right, this isn't a far off God in a far away country. He is near. And we, were, we present our requests before Him. And it's not because He doesn't know what we need, right? Jesus says this, your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But we do so because when we do so, we are assured of His knowledge, knowing that we ourselves have laid it before Him. I know that God is aware of this. I myself have told Him. Not because He didn't already know. The grammar of this text also speaks of the need for continual prayer. This isn't just a a quick shot up in prayer, and then you're done. Let me get back to my anxiety, please. I've, I've prayed. It's done. Now, this is a season of continual prayer. Some commentators have translated this passage in a variety of ways. Uh, Do not be anxious in any situation, but through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, be continually bringing your requests before the presence of God. It's a continual wrestling in prayer. Sometimes we must wrestle in prayer. I don't know if you know what that's like. 
to be going before Him, and, and there's just something that's heavy upon your heart, and you're laboring, you're, you're asking, Lord, this is, this is what my heart desires, this is what I want to see you do in, in my life, in the lives of others. Lord, would you please work in this area? And you're wrestling, and you're wrestling through prayer with this. It's like a fight that lasts for hours. My mind goes to Jacob wrestling with the angel when the Lord was the angel of the Lord. He wrestled with him all night until daybreak. I will not let you go until you bless me. And sometimes when we are dealing with anxiety, we have to wrestle like that. And I want to be clear about something. When I say wrestling in prayer, I don't believe we're wrestling with God, like God's holding something back from us and we're trying to wrestle that out of His hands. Lord, give that to me. I, I don't think that's what it means to wrestle in prayer. But rather, we're wrestling with our own hearts. And we're wrestling with our own ability to turn these things over to God. We're wrestling with our own flesh. Not long ago, I was lying awake in bed one night. My mind was racing about a particular scenario. I could not get out of my head. My heart rate was accelerated. My mind was just running laps. I was just fixated on this thing. And I would pray, Lord, I don't, I don't want this. I don't want to be an anxious person. I don't want to live a life of anxiety. And I want to trust you in this. But even in the midst of as I was praying that, my prayer itself was interrupted with my mind and the, the anxious thoughts of just trying to crowd back in and saying, oh wait, there's something else you haven't thought about, and it's really terrible. And before I knew it, I was knee deep in this, or neck deep even, in these anxious thoughts once again. I had to catch myself all over again and start over. It's just, no, wrestling in prayer that this is what I need to do. I need to come before the throne of my heavenly Father. And it is a battle. This isn't a quick fix. This isn't, oh, just say your prayers and all your problems will be fixed. It's all done. No, it is wrestling. It is a battle. But it is a necessary aspect of the pathway to joy through our anxiety. And connected with that is this issue of Thanksgiving. The third pathway is that of being thankful. The slides aren't advancing, I don't know why, but Paul says, by prayers and supplications, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Often when we we ask and we ask and we ask and we ask and we go to the Lord in prayer in these ways, and we don't recognize what God has already done for us in our lives. And it's interesting, as, again, as I was reading different materials on this, modern science has been able to uncover the effectiveness of gratitude for improving our personal lives. I was reading some secular resources about anxiety. These, these resources never gave a thought to God, never had an interest in what God has to say about these topics. And yet, they discovered that when people have gratitude within their lives, they tend to suffer from things like anxiety less, and those with anxiety begin to improve when they intentionally focus on being thankful as part of their daily habits. Even the secular world is beginning to realize that these are, this is an effective thing for dealing with our anxieties. Why? Why is that effective? 
And I, I think there's, there's a couple of different angles that we can think about that. On one of the, it takes our minds off the negative things that we're dwelling on. We're anxious about something negative when we're dwelling on it, and we're, we're taking it off of those, and we're placing it upon something that God has already done. Something that God has already done. Just, just think about for a moment, what has God done in your life? Just, just even right now, think about for a moment, what has God done in your life? Have you seen God at work in the past? I know, just even from the limited time that we've known each other, some of you I've known longer than others, but even just in the time that we've known each other, I know from your own lips the testimonies that I've heard from your mouths about how God has worked in your lives. And we can be thankful that God has done those. We can remember those things. We can call them to mind. Sometimes in the moment when we're experiencing particular difficulties of anxiety, we, it can be difficult to call the things to mind that we should be thankful for. Well, write them down. When, when those anxious thoughts aren't there, write them down. Make notes of, these are things that God has done. And then we can refer to that and be thankful for what He has done. Secondly, I think that when, we, when we're thankful from a biblical perspective, we are actually worshiping God. We are worshiping the one who has made us. We are honoring Him as the one who has given us all things. And we can thank Him in our, even for this current anxiety battle because it is revealing our own weaknesses and our need for Him and what He has done for us. So as we pray, it's, it's not only to bring our requests and our pleas, but we must do so with gratitude, knowing that He has done great things for us, that He hears our prayers, that He is near, and that He is at work even now. The fourth pathway, fourth pathway through our anxiety for joy is to pursue truth. Pursue truth. I'm going to skip over verse 7 for a minute. We'll come back to that in a moment. But notice as Paul goes into verse 8, where he says, Finally, brothers, and that, that finally could also be translated as moreover. It has the idea of, okay, this is information I'm giving you. Well, moreover, even more so, consider this as well. It's a connecting idea. Whatever is true. Honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. Think on these things. Oftentimes when we're dealing with various anxieties and we're struggling with, with these different things, often our fears, these are fears that we would even recognize as irrational. Right? They're not things that are grounded in reality. And we can tell ourselves that these things, oh, they'll never happen, but then our mind says, yeah, but what if it does? Right? That, that, that's what happens. We need to call our minds and bring our minds back to truth. What is true? Our fears speak lies into our minds. Anxiety itself is a lie. When we're fixed on something, fixated on something that isn't true, when we dwell on it and it enlarges in our mind and becomes this massive issue, we must call our minds to focus on what is true. Just as we dispel darkness by shining light, even so we must dispel our anxieties with truth. Often when our anxieties get a hold of us, we lose focus on what is actually true. 
whether it's a situational anxiety thing about what if this happens, what if that, we lose focus. We lose, we lose the ability to remember what is actually true. What does reality reflect in this moment? And we must combat the lies with truth. Seek truth. Pursue truth. Communicate truth to ourselves until you believe it. As we wrestle in prayer, we remind ourselves of what is true. And finally, the fifth pathway for joy is to train your mind. Train your mind. Look, as verse 8, as he lists off these things that we're to be thinking about, whatever is true, again, that which is accurate, that which is not false, that which is true based in reality, we embrace truth. What is something that is true? Honorable. Something that is worthy of respect. It is of good character. It is noble. Just. Right. As it should be. Justice. Righteousness. As God is just. God is perfect. He is just pure. Whatever is pure, whatever is that which is without evil, that which is holy, that which is unstained, it is untainted. Our mind goes to the picture of Jesus Christ as a lamb without blemish or without spot. Whatever is lovely, that which stirs our affections like, a, like our Savior taking on humanity for us commendable, whatever is commendable, whatever is worthy of receiving our recommendation is worth approving. Excellence, it speaks of outstanding goodness or, or virtue, high moral character. Praiseworthy, something that is worth praising, something that is worth telling others about, something that is worth, again, it's just kind of similar overlap to the meaning of commendable. Something I'm glad to tell others about, I'm glad to praise this thing. These are the things that we ought to be thinking on. He says, whatever is fits into these categories, think on these things. Years ago, I memorized this passage from the, from the New King James Version to help me shake bad thought patterns that were in my life at that time. And when, it was a very helpful exercise for me. I would, when I would catch myself dwelling on something I shouldn't be dwelling on, I had this list memorized, and I could repeat it in a rapid fire. Good, noble, just, pure, lovely, good report. I got to think of something like that. Good, noble, just, pure, lovely, good report. And then I would slow down. What is something that is good? Good, noble. Okay, what is something that is noble? Good, noble, lovely. Just call to mind, what is something in these categories? And think about those things. And, And it's hard at first. It is so very hard at first. But this is why this says train your mind. Because even though it's hard at first, as you continue to work at it, as we continue to to practice this, as Paul is going to say, practice these things, it begins to get easier over time. It begins to be have the effect in our minds over time. So I would recommend memorize this passage. Memorize this text where it says, be anxious for nothing, that, that when the anxiety strikes, when the, when the panic attack begins to set in, where we can call these things to our minds and we can, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dwell on something good, noble, just, pure, lovely. I'm not going to let myself get fixated on these negative 
things. We have to train our minds for the battle. Paul says to think on these things, and again, that could be translated as continually think on these things, to be continually addressing these things in your mind. It's another battle. And I think of a, of a boxer who loses a fight, and what if he were to do nothing to train himself and to improve himself, not work on his strength, not work on his footwork or his ability, agility or anything else, between his last fight that he lost and the next fight coming up. What's going to happen when he steps back into that ring? He's going to get destroyed again. He's going to get wrecked, right? That's what's going to happen. Perhaps he's merely a glutton for punishments, but a boxer that is serious about winning, serious about improving, he trains. He wants to be ready for that next fight. And I think this is a helpful f- analogy for us as we think about there are, there are different periods of life where we might have waves of anxiety and then perhaps that subsides for a time and then there's going to be another wave that's going to come at some point. What are you doing in the meantime to bolster your strength, to bolster your faith, to bolster your own defenses so that you're ready for that next wave? We must train our minds. Memorize Scripture Be in taking the Word of God. Be dwelling on the things of the Lord. Meditate on Scripture. The enemy wants to keep us distracted. He wants to distract our minds and to bring our minds down through these anxious areas. Our own flesh betrays us. How will we train our minds for the battle? And again, I would encourage you, memorize this passage as a start. Start right here. Because not only do we find that there is a pathway to joy through our anxiety in this text, but there are some incredible promises here as well. And if we do as this passage instructs, there are two major, major promises that God gives us. He gives us the promises of peace. The first promise is back in verse 7. After he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He then gives us this glorious promise. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God promises his peace. Truthfully, peace in some circumstances don't make, doesn't, just doesn't make sense. It surpasses understanding. It doesn't make sense how we should have peace in that moment. It's our, beyond our ability to comprehend. This is a peace that only has its source in God. No one else can provide that for us. It is peace that only He can give. He says this peace will guard your hearts and your minds. Think of a soldier whose job is to, to keep watch over a city and guard it. And this is what the peace of God will do, what God's peace will do. If we're going to go to Him in prayer, continually wrestling through prayer in these areas, the promise is that God's peace will help guard your hearts and your mind. That's the first promise, that the peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds. The second is down in verse 9. 
Paul says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and what? The God of peace will be with you. First, we're promised that the peace of God will guard our hearts, and now we have the God of peace himself who will be with you. If we practice these things, if we, if we do them, if we work those things out, again, these, these aren't passive instructions that if we just sit back and just, just let things happen to us. No, it, these things are active things that we must be doing. We have to actually engage in them. But if we do, here's the promise. The God of peace will be with you. So we get both the peace of God and the God of peace coming together, helping us. Walk with Him on the pathway of joy, even through our anxiety. So we don't have to live lives of anxiety. We don't have to let it control and define us. We can live lives of peace when we are doing as Paul instructs here. And again, this isn't an easy road. This is the pathway of joy. It's not an easy road pathway. This isn't a quick fix that you just, you just do this real quick and everything is taken care of. It is a difficult, challenging road. But it's a road worth traveling because God's peace is worth it. That peace is worth the effort. Scripture says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on who? On him. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Speaking of our Lord. In a few moments, we're going to move to our time of the Lord's table. And I wanted to just remind us a little bit about what is represented here. Of course, we remind ourselves of this each week. But in the context of this passage as we have studied it, 